This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Brian from the Future of Education Observatory. And hi, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about uh, Jack London and American Life, a giant biography. I guess it's there have been bigger ones, but this is a pretty big. 17-hour biography uh, published by Tantor, read by Michael Pritchard. And um, I think I heard about this book from you, Brian. Was that true? Did you read this when it came out in 2013? Um, I read part of it when it came out, um, oh. but I talked to Earl when he was writing it, so oh. it may have been that uh, maybe that was the connection. Yeah, well, we've done shows on a bunch of Jack London uh, short stories and novels prior, yeah. uh, because I'm, I'm a big Jack London fan. I haven't read everything, but uh, I just think he's he's a dynamo, He's or was yeah. a dynamo. Yeah, look. Jesse, have, 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 has the show ever done a biography before? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I've got 470 shows behind me, so <laughs> I can't remember everything. But I when, think I must time? have done a Lovecraft one, right? We did a, an H.P. Lovecraft biography that was actually fairly recently. Um, and we're going to do another one uh, that's a comic book version, which is pretty cool. But I don't know anything else other than that. I mean, just even nonfiction in general is very, very rare on this show. Yeah, relatively rare. Um, but I'm fascinated with the period, you know. I used to think, uh, when I was a kid, I thought that, you know, anything after 1899 was completely under- uninteresting, you know. <laughs> just like totally uninteresting. I'm interested in the future, which was the 21st century when I was a kid. And I'm interested in the 19th century and, you know, a few other centuries prior to that. But actually, I think the turn of the century is incredibly interesting. Uh, uh, the turning of the 20th century, that is. Um, and Yeah, I, I keep yeah. coming back there in my my 100 pages podcast. Yeah. Like I, I, I try to spread out but i whenever i like get bored with a period i i jump back to that turn of the century and that's i've been doing all these black writers from the turn of the century lately it's, so it's i don't know it's important what it somehow. is about that period it's really important somehow like, finn day sickle and the the change from victorian to edwardian the world war one on the horizon it's a time of massive change in the world I was thinking, uh, I went back and started listening to the book again, you know, after you finished the book. Um, I And I was listening to it, and Labor starts the, the, the book with um, his parents, um, or, or at least his quasi-parents, right? And looking at their stories, you know, and wh- where they came from, it's it's sort of to see where he comes from. And mm-hmm. I guess that's that's we can all think of our own family histories and where our families were doing back then, assuming we know these details. Um, and you can sort of see how everything was really connected in ways that uh, 
are unforeseeable at the time, but it really helps to understand what the hell's going on now, I think, to look at the past. And especially, you know, a couple of generations ago, not, you know, last year. Because I still, uh, it's, you know, one of my students says, so I says so i should watch the news and i said no don't watch the news <laughs> you know read the read the news of, of 10 years ago uh as a history and then you'll understand what's going on now and i think you know if we if we aim too far back if we start talking about uh william the conqueror uh i mean that's good for etymology but it's not great for it's not great for you know understanding like just the fact that both jack london's parents quasi parents were really into seances and spiritualism i mean this is a weird fucking phenomenon right that we don't deal with in the way that they had to deal with on a daily basis well it's not too weird for the time period that's what um, i'm saying you know, yeah, this is I mean, uh, that's a that's coming like you know, 30 years into uh, spiritualism right it, and it takes yeah, a while for these things to die right and and you know, Jack London still can't quite shake it, even. I don't know if it's, in, it's entirely died. I mean, it's kind of morphed into other uh, mm. practices. I don't know. Our, I'm not sure Americans are more rational than most other people on the planet, <laughs> by and large. Pretty much all Chinese that. believe in ghosts. Sure. But my students well, majority... believe in ghosts. But, you know, compared to Europeans, Americans... Really believe this stuff? Oh, we we believe in all kinds of things. We believe in UFOs. We believe in angels. Yeah. We believe in the prosperity gospel. We, uh, you know, we're we're pretty credulous. Well, yeah, that, that's but like the spiritual stuff it. is is pretty fascinating. I I've been playing around in my head of of working on a biography of this guy named Warren Chase. Who it's really my interest comes because he's a Wisconsin guy and mm-hmm. he's born in New Hampshire, but he was an indentured servant essentially like apprenticed out as a kid and then he eventually came over to wisconsin and he was involved in utopian socialism he was kind of an early wisconsin republican he was even at the state constitutional convention and wrote some books about the the civil war and like free labor and stuff but then later in his life he became a spiritualist and i've been trying to work out any connection between these different ideas he had this utopian socialism and this kind of Republican free soil idea and this importance of, yeah. of land and labor and then spiritualism. I can't really find the connection between all these ideas directly. It just seems he was buying. He was kind of well. You can interested well, in all this. What stuff. years is he? What years is? What what years is he writing? Well, he was born in like eight, 18 or eighteen 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 twenty or so. And came to Wisconsin in the eighteen early eighteen forties, and then he started a utopian socialist community there. He, most of his writing comes later. In fact, he only wrote a few like pamphlet kind of things, and then a a, a couple autobiographies. But I'm trying to piece his life together. But I can't really find a, a thread to to tie everything together in a satisfactory way. Well, the, there's a lot of connections. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you could think about. Um, you're talking about the long 19th century. You know, you're talking about the, the huge rise of science and rationalism. I mean, don't forget that Marx Marx dedicates Das Kapital to Darwin because he thinks that yeah. he's figured out the science of economics. And a lot of the people doing psychic and spiritual stuff, not all, but a lot of them were thinking about 
you know, it's a new world we found. Okay, what are the laws? What are the principles? Mm-hmm. How does it function? Uh, the second thing I think of is is a lot of utopians mm-hmm. want a different world, uh, and they have that 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 daring imagination. Uh, I mean, there's a there's an interesting connection there. Mm-hmm. There's a another thing that that was really prevalent then, and I, I guess you guys touched on it, was um, the quote unquote Horatio Alger story, mm-hmm. which yep. Uh, you know, I've heard about. <laughs> it's, not... it's one of those American American ur myths. Yeah, I mean, I mean, e- yeah, e- even people who don't know the actual details, kind of when they when they hear Horatio Alger, is like, oh yeah, someone pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and becoming wildly successful because of hard work, diligence, and and this and the sweat of their labors. And and that uh, yeah, everyone. It, it's sort of epitomized by knows. London, right? Is the idea? Is that well? He's always thinking about it. I mean, yeah. in, in Earl's telling, he's always a, uh, you know, got to make my fortune, and I can, and uh, and it's harder for me because I come from poverty and from misfortune, and so it's uh, it's much more challenging for me. So I mean, in London's in Earl's account, he's complaining about it, he's bragging about it. It's a it's a crucial part of his identity, um, and that's a. Uh, that's, you know, he's a contemporary of uh, Horatio Alger, actually. I've got, I've got. What's well, Martin Eden's problem, right? He, at the one time, he's he's very proud of how he's worked himself up, but he ends up very isolated and lonely. Yeah, I've got, um, I've got this um, end of this article that when Jack London was in um, uh, Sydney, Australia, recovering from so many illnesses in this book. Um, <laughs> So yeah, he really gets knocked around in this it book. Is not I, I, good. I, I, I did not realize Jack London went through all this. No wonder he died at forty. I can't, I, I can't imagine surviving that long. The rate he's burning himself out. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that really impressed me about about this. But I mean, I'm biased. I mean, I worked with Earl. I'm a Jack London fan. I'm an Earl Labor fan. Um, but, but I don't remember reading in my, my cursory studies of London, the, the sense of him being so debilitated. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Always that sense of him being so lively and fierce. Yeah. yeah the heat man. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, my, my misconception of Jack London was, oh yeah, the heat man, he went to the, he went to the Yukon, he came back, he wrote all sorts of stories. Yeah. I learned a lot <laughs> to the contrary <laughs> in this book. That's for sure. Well, they, well, it puts John Barleycorn in some context too, doesn't it? That this, this fatalism about how did he describe it in John Barleycorn the the, the noseless stranger whatever your skull oh. the, the the presence of your death arriving it's all tied in yeah. the so, uh, stuff I, I'm a, I'm a little unclear that's one of the books of his that I have not read um, there's a few that I haven't read of his and that's one of them I mean I guess there's dozens actually now that I think about it that I'm, that nobody reads the plays and such but uh, John Barleycorn is that his biography. That he well, it's 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 hard to say how much is fictionalized. It's presented as an autobiography, but I think officially it's it's presented as it, it's like a novel. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it's called a novel. Right. But I kind of take it as truth when I read it. But it's it's a it's about alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that, it, it comes up a number of times in the book. Alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I, I like but, that turn of phrase that John Barleycorn is is another word for whiskey, right? Right. But so in the last few chapters of that, though, he goes on this philosophical tangent about what he calls the white logic. And this is 
Well, he, he starts out talking about how there's people who get drunk in the head and there's those who get drunk in the body. And the people who get drunk in the body are the ones who go pink elephant. And then he says he's the one who gets drunk in the mind or in the head. And the result of that is this white logic. And it's this, it basically it's this fatalism about existence. And he's look, so he talks about getting like drunk and buying this white logic and seeing the people fill the meaninglessness of life, kind of the Nietzschean logic that God is dead with, with religion and, and other stupid stuff. And then he doesn't really, he just gets to fill it in with fatalism. And then the, the answer is, what do you find that's kind of another path? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he talks about that at the end of the book. He really did live a lot in his 40 years. <laughs> I, and, and just, I was, I was talking oh my- about my friend Steen. God, it's an insane amount. It is crazy. Yeah. I was telling my friend Steen, you know, why he, he should enjoy reading this book. I, I just started recounting all of the things that he had done uh, when he's still a teenager. And it was a long list, right? <laughs> yeah. It is incredible. Like, I did a lot of things as a kid, but not, <laughs> you know, not like that. It was crazy. I, you know, I delivered newspapers as a kid at five o'clock in the morning, but I didn't have to do it after school too. And and then you know, quitting school to work, and then going on a ship to Japan, and you know, going up to the Klondike, getting all your teeth knocked out, and coming back and and hoboing around the United States with an army of army of protesters army it's crazy just the amount of sheer physical movement and and difficulty that just piles up on it on essentially uh a a child i wonder how many working class people would have had comparable experiences i think that a lot of them would have had some some something like that i know that you know he's he's not speaking like he's the lone exception to this, right? That's his sort of connection to socialism is it's not just me who's getting a shaft here, right? The the child labor laws are non-existent for a lot of what's going on, or at least the child labor protections are non-existent. And and that's, it's incredibly powerful to just to see all of that stuff compressed into such a short period of time. Well, I think some of it is some of it is typical in the sense of, of incredibly hard work uh, and also varied work because um, this is a time when the industrial revolution is transforming the U.S. So um, most people at this time would have had farm experience, um, and that may have, that may have been at somebody else's house or may have been theirs, um, and and having long hours of work and also being bound into the family economy. So, London keeps writing about having to uh, support his parents uh, his mother and uh, and the family um but then but i think what's different are two things one is is travel um that as a kid he's constantly on the road um going places going far away that's a little different mm-hmm. um and the other is is his love of of literature um you know that's um that's still relatively unusual i mean at that time i'm not sure what the literacy rate was i'm going to guess about 25 percent mm-hmm. um and, and rising, but still, that's that's pretty striking. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm just I, I'm I'd heard different parts of the London epic, uh, but I'd, I'd never sat down and gone through all of them in a row. And I'm I'm just I'm blown away. I mean, a friend 
friend of mine, uh, Peter Lurie, wrote a book about uh, uh, Jack London's uh, Klondike experience, and that by itself is plenty for a life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a huge, huge tale. And I'm sorry, Jesse, I have to say that includes perfidy by Canadians. You know, I just have to put that out there. <laughs> okay. Um, but but the but you know to have all of those experiences, my God! I mean, it's you know when you read London's fiction, it's invigorating because it's so full of energy and life. Mm-hmm. But to add his life to it, that's even more energy. Yeah. Well, uh, look at how many stories came out of that that one one winter, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over again. I, this is one of the. I mean, I'm I'm always as literally critic I'm always really careful about the the blood brain barrier between life and and fiction um, it's but, a thin barrier uh, I was really impressed at how carefully Earl shows yeah uh, to show the the uh, how frequently London raided his life for stories uh, both you know, nonfiction as well as fiction even even the you know I'm I started my my worship in a certain sense of Jack London my fascination with Jack London stuff with the Call of the Wild, I couldn't believe what a great book it was, and I, I still think of it as maybe the best, the best novel for reading. <laughs> you know, just it's amazing, an amazing book, and it, it's full of all sorts of weird things that people don't focus on. Like uh, there's a scene where where the dog is sitting by the campfire, Buck is sitting by the campfire, and and he sees the man he's with. Uh, it's probably I can't remember the name of the character, but the the sort of the Jack London-esque figure that's sitting at the fire beside him. And he sees him not as as he is, but as a caveman and and sees himself not as a, Mm. you know, a a dog, but as a wolf, just barely tamed. Right. And that this is a race memory. Yeah, that's bizarre (laughs) that that's in there but it 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 so fits everything that jack london's doing right is is that it's not just one little thing there's so much going on he's he's a kind of brilliant um thinker and that's when when you're reading his stuff and it's not all like that some of it's kind of um as i guess he puts it hack uh, work hack work yeah some of it's hack work but you know, there's so many sketches of just like this is this is horror, right? This is a horror idea, and one of my favorites of his is um, it gets a, and I'm glad it does get a mention in here and and kind of an interest, and I, I enjoin you guys to read it if you have not, uh, is the red one, is uh, post uh, posthumous published. Um, horror story set in the Solomon Islands with ancient astronauts. It's just, it's an insanely yeah. interesting oh, the, story. The, oh, the red one? The red one, yeah. Yeah, that's a really dark and twisted story. I, I, I taught it a couple of times. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a... That, that feels like something that could have been written in the 70s. It's yeah. so interesting, um, because yeah. it, it does have this feel of Jung going on in it um with with uh, and like yeah. just there's all these symbols like laden in the in the story but also like seeing how he how what he's drawing inspiration from is like basically the main character in that is lying sick unable to move for most of the story <laughs> and <laughs> that is straight out of what he was you know experiencing when he was in the solomons yeah 
Yeah. Ah, uh, man, it's astounding to to see. It, it, this is, I guess, exactly what I wanted from this book. You know, when I read Philip K. Dick, um, I can see him drawing from his own life all these ridiculous ideas um, of you know suburbia and uh, you know how how to relate to your neighbors and. And your wife, uh, and your wife, and what the relationship between you and all right, and your and your neighbors who are immigrants, what you know, all of that, um, you could just see it coming right in the same way. Jack London is is reworking his own his own thoughts as fiction, and it's um, it's funny this article uh, from the Lone Hand I mentioned earlier, <laughs> the, the uh, interviewer is not named. Uh, it's M.M. is the initials, uh, says, you know, it's hard to... <laughs> he's a hard man to interview because he basically interviews himself. You sit down, he starts talking, um, you don't even get to ask any questions. And you can see that that's exactly how he was able to write so much, is that he's just constantly thinking aloud uh, on the paper, right? And that's yeah. it's fascinating. But I wanted to read the last... Um, Three paragraphs from this article because it's um, it's in Jack London's words with quotations marks around it, so it's kind of interesting and it really, I I think it shows just how how close Earl Labor got to understanding uh, Jack London. I I don't know if I've read a biography that is more um, not sympathetic, more accurate <laughs> in a certain sense. Uh, than this, I haven't read millions of biographies, but uh, I wanted to read this because it's it it feels like exactly what Earl Labor's going on about in this book. When I think of the defining, uh, think of the define uh, when I think of defining my position, I remember my return from the Klondike. I remember my mother and the kid, the house with the rent man threatening, and the storekeepers who got tired of living on hope, our hope. I remember the carpets I beat and the chicken houses I cleaned and the work I hunted for day after day to hear always the same reply. I remember that I sold the story that gave me a standing in the literary world for something like five shillings a column of one of our daily papers. And then I ha and then the half-baked economist wonders why I'm not an individualist. Capitalization on individualist. Why, if you took these stout gentlemen who tell you all about the sweetness of the uses of adversity and gave them a year of the life of the average unskilled laborer, they wouldn't be socialists. Half of them would be hobos, beer-sodden wrecks, who would just occasionally get together sufficient dignity to commit small unprofitable thefts or acts as, act as scabs at strike time. The other half, the ones who didn't quit, would be full-fledged graduates in anarchy, whose principal trouble in life was that they couldn't get a six-penny worth, six worth of puric acid to blow up your parliament house. <laughs> That's the end of the... <laughs> he's, a, he's a firecracker, this guy, right? Oh, wow. Brilliant, brilliant mind. And it's hard to... Um, to like, I, I, I know quite a bit about George Sterling... Peripherally, I've never uh, read m much of his stuff, but he plays kind of a uh, a role in London's life um, here. And 
he's he's like he's of no interest to anybody today, <laughs> right? Do you know anybody who goes around talking about George Sterling's poetry or anything like that? Only no. uh, only people who talk about him in his role with uh, the kind of the weird tale circle, you know, connections right. with uh, Pierce, Clark Ashton and, uh, Smith, etc. Yeah. yeah, but he he has he he's it's it's really interesting that there's this figure that stands head and shoulders above pretty much everybody on the west coast of the United States. Um, and, you know, sort of tilts the whole continent towards San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, the, his, his great peers of the time are not basically forgotten. I mean, Ambrose Bierce is tiny compared to this guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Bierce was, you know, uh, huge in his period. So yeah. I, I just find it hard to, to grasp the giantness that is Jack Lennon, with his mother, who I r- went back and realized in the beginning, four and a half feet tall, right? Uh, Isn't that crazy? Uh, and he's not even that really big. Small. He's only 5'9". Hey. No, I just, like, this is this is, this is is a man who, who traveled the world and punched Japanese officers in the face during a war. I mean, <laughs> what the hell? Yes. <laughs> It almost it, it's like it, it's almost a cartoon of unbelievability that he even existed and lasted as long as he did. I think. I mean, he's not like a lot of other writers who, you know, in J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, sure, he was in World War One, but uh, what did he do immediately thereafter? Is settle down, settle down as a quiet don and go for walks and smoke pipes, right? right. This is Where not is, the same right. kind of guy as everybody else. Yeah, I mean, we, we, get, we get in the book again and again that he and then later he and Charmin were like restless, like, oh, I, I, I can't stay in this farm anymore. We got to go, got to go somewhere. And mm-hmm. so let's go, let's go take, let's go across, try to go around the world, but only get as far as the Solomon Islands. Like, okay, then let's go, to, let's take on a writing trip up into North Carolina, North Carol, California. Just, just, there's a, restless energy to him. I mean, he was burning the candle at both ends and in the center, but Jack London apparently could not stay still for very long. I mean, there's points where they talk about he was happy for a while at these various places, but there's always that undercurrent of I've got to go and got to go, got to get moving, got to get moving. And it, 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 I was, I was really, uh, entranced by this, like, he just wanted to keep going. I mean, he never got to Europe or any place like that. I mean, he goes, he gets as far as the East Coast, and in the West, he gets as far as the Solomons, but he never got anywhere near the Old World. Where as was far in as London? I tell. Oh, well, that's what he's in London. I did miss that. The people's the abyss based on his time in London. Right. 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 I mean, on, the, on the East End, yeah. Oh, I missed it. I missed, oh, I'm, I must have spaced out for. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like he spends much time in Europe, right? Yeah, and he does. Yeah, I think it's just that it's like a less than a month or, or so. It's, but he did it on Jack London time. He you know? did it. Yeah, yeah. yeah Jack. He really doesn't waste a lot of time, right? He's uh, and and a lot of it, I think. I mean, no. I think he's burning himself out partly, not just by all the smoking and drinking, and and being, you know, getting into boxing matches and scurvy and all that, <laughs> but also just not sleeping enough. I mean, he was down to four hours as is his ideal time or something like that. 
And yeah, I, no, he, I, you know, he, he feels like he feels like uh, go back to Lovecraft. He feels like um, shadow out of time. You know, he feels like uh, an alien has temporarily right. possessed a human mind and wants to uh, and wants to get as much out of it as possible. Uh, now, there's a story seed. A yith takes over Jack London. <laughs> there's an you're idea. Welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy. <laughs> you're welcome, listeners. If I don't write it, you can. <laughs> Well, he's so conflicted about the the work ethic in a way in some of his socialist writings. And you see it certainly in The Iron Heel and in The People of the Abyss, where you get this sense that this, the work's not leading these people anywhere. Yet, maybe because it's his Americanism or that elder myth that still affects him on some level, he still embraced it in his own life. But it seems he's so critical of it. I mean, that's, I mean, Martin Eden worked so hard and he doesn't really anything out of it that's another another of the books of his i have not read um mm-hmm. I, I i haven't even read the 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 sea wolf or or oh oh, sea oh wolf. That's great. i i want to do i want to do a show on that because i know i'm going to love it because uh, i actually sterling's a major character in martin eden interesting his name is brissenden he, he right. shows up as a poet named brissenden who kills himself at 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 the end, I don't. Did Sterling kill himself? Is that drawn from life? I don't know. I I, I don't know. Yeah, I read. I tried to read some no, of his poetry. No, it, was, it, was it was definitely um, it was definitely uh, high vocab, but it didn't have the spark. Right? You could see that he, he he's he's kind of like me. He's able to appreciate great work, but if I tried to put my hand to uh, to that stuff, the only way I can be satisfied with it is if I'm doing it for comedic effect. Right. Whereas he's he's doing it for full, full, um, you know, he's trying to be great. <laughs> and so you're, uh, you're saying you're, you're like Weird Al. Oh, exactly. And he was basically the only musician I, I like to listen to anything by <laughs> when I was a kid because he was always taking the piss out of everything. And and uh, it made me uh, kind of like music in, in that way. But um. Uh, I wanna I wanna talk about the stories that you guys um, find powerful. So we, we've already mentioned a few. Um, Paul, what's 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 the story that got you into Jack London? Um, I I came across Jack London as many many younger people did back in God has to be elementary school or maybe junior high school when I. Wound up reading Call of the Wild. Right. I, I now I gotta wonder. I mean, side tangent is Call of the Wild common now, decades after I did. I mean, I mean, what what are what are in school libraries? Is Jacqueline still still school libraries? I I kind of yeah. want to know. Yeah. Is, is he still that? Is he still being discovered that way, or not? I would hope. I would I would hope, but um, it's just like, but it's not. I'm not sure if he has it. So I went from Call of the Wild to White Fang because you know, like, because they are kind of like um, mirror images I, of each other, and went on from went on from there to I. I think I read the Sea Wolf. It sounds familiar. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some some of the stuff that early is kind of a blur as to what I read and didn't read. I read a. I think I tried the Iron Heel and I bounced off. Oh of yeah, that's the easy one to bounce off of. Maybe. Oh, how can you say that? That's great. Iron Heel's wonderful. Uh, I think it's very interesting, but I don't think it's uh, it's mostly sitting around listening to a guy lecture. 
Um, it's not, I don't find it to be very, um, I mean, it's not adventure. Yeah, yeah. I, I like yeah. lectures. Yeah, but, 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 it's, well, but, it's, um, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not going out into the Klondike wilderness. So I might as well, like, what the heck is this? Now, oh, heck, I'll go with something else. So I wonder, it's, it's interesting that it hasn't, uh, it hasn't come back in, uh, popularity, um, for the past, uh, uh Jesse and Evan, you probably have seen a little bit of this, that we've got um, uh, interest in, dy- in older dystopias in the U.S. ever since Trump's election. Yep. So there's uh, um, you know, 1984, but also um, It Can't Happen Here. Right. Or, um, but no one's been talking about the Iron Heel. And it may be because of something we haven't talked about, which is uh, his uh, engagement with racism. Uh, I mean, he was um, that shows up in his writing, and his fiction, and his nonfiction. And uh, that would just kill his reputation, no. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I mean, I've I've seen people say things that you know he's racist, and and that, the thing is, is the the I think there's even one point in this book where he talks about uh, how how London slams the mesitos, uh, the mixed race people of Mexico in the in the Mexican Revolution, as being you know troublemakers or something ridiculous like that. And it's because they're mixed race or something like that. Um, and I, it seems to me that of all the people at the period, and there are a lot of people at the period, not a hell of a lot of them are less racist than London, excepting where he's making mistakes. So many of his stories are skewering, horrible, you know, like brutal skewering of racism and the idea that, well, it's it's not skewing of racism, sort of stupid racism, as in, I don't know anything about them, therefore they must be bad. Um, his, um, he has so many stories where it's the, and it comes up in this too, in this book, It's there's a great line somewhere in the book about how the white race sort of lives on the destruction and putrefaction of, of the deaths of the societies it's crushing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and no, I agree. But but the uh, but you can find plenty of stuff about the uh, yellow peril, sure, um, which is pretty deep. And I'm not saying I agree with this assessment. I'm responding to Paul's question about would you find this in libraries, right. and would people talk about it now? Yeah, mm. I find I find I, so many of his stories though are they're very appropriate for thinking today. So there's a story I did for uh, reading short and deep called the wisdom of the trail. I don't know if you guys mm. know this story. It's very short. It's a, it's just about uh, some white people uh, hiking into the Yukon to, you know, make the gold gold rush happen, and they've got some Indian guides. And the Indian one of the Indian guides, sort of the viewpoint character, um, has this has got it into his head that white people are superior, um, and he's adopted the white man's mentality. And so at the the crux of the story when it you know two of the indian guides have have uh it, done something they shouldn't have done which is stop walking and hiking and carrying the stuff and eaten more than their share of the food he just kills them he executes them and he uses you know very uh biblical uh james uh, king james version sort of englishman dialogue as he executes them and then at the very next second, 
um, it finds out that they've they've hit, you know, they're in safety. He hears in the distance the the crack of a rifle shot, which means you know that they've finally made camp, and that so he's just executed these two Indians, fellow Indians, uh, for basically no reason. But he he is not regretful because he's adopted the white man's mentality, the wisdom of the trails that white men is not as oh white men's burdens are to be carried by red men and it's oh it's so brutal this story mm. it just mm. it turns you inside out with pain and and that is not something you can do by pretending racism doesn't exist um he's surrounded by racism half of his stories uh, on the list i'm looking at are are about dealing with the con you know like just the fact that everywhere around him people are using race as an excuse to do things and so when when he does tackle it so many of the times it's it's to say you've made a mistake white people his audience Um, right well that's that's how i read it when i did my series not long ago on jack london it's yeah, and the whole. Well, I, I think it's broader. It's like a whole critique of social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. I, I think he is a social Darwinist mm-hmm. kind of in like material. Like he looked at the world, and he saw societies dominating others. I mean, he said it's a, the the peak of European imperialism, right? The time he died, Europe was Europe had pretty much conquered the world. Mm-hmm. So he's. So he sees it. It seems to me he sees social Darwinism almost as a as a fact of life, but he he dislikes it so much, and he he thinks it it doesn't get you anywhere. And I, I think that's the story of Martin Eden. I think it's certainly the story of the Sea Wolf, yeah. and a lot yeah. of these stories where the end result of this struggle for existence is just loneliness and despair, suicide, and um, or just even take the story everyone reads, like. Uh, to build a fire, right? Mm-hmm. That's where individualism and gets you. It's yeah, even the gets dog you a lot. Is that is that the story that, that is that the story that got you interested in London? Even um, well, that was the first I read because I had to. Mm-hmm. I didn't come to London really till probably graduate school. I read a few more of his stories, and then I read. I bought the Library of America two volume edition. That's when I read all the stories. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I read. So it wasn't until probably fire in school. over thirty years old that I actually went through systematically and read all the, all the stories. And then I was mostly interested in his socialism and his view on social Darwinism. Cause I was doing a lot of thinking and, and reading on like social Darwinism in China. And it is, it's all kind of beside the point, but I was really interested in his take on that, on socialism, social Darwinism and how these two traditions that you see so often as contradictory come together. Um, well, I, 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 I had a similar experience. Um, I, I started, I read uh, To Build a Fire as a, as a kid, I think for class, mm-hmm. and um, and liked it. I mean, it made an impression, but it didn't, it didn't, I didn't go much further. And then when I was in, uh, uh, when I was at university, uh, through my PhD, I was doing, I was doing British literature and didn't do any, uh, any American really at all. Uh, but then I started teaching at uh, Centenary College, and Earl Labor was a colleague. And, uh, and he was fantastic. I mean, he was just, he was fierce. He was brilliant. He was so, so committed to teaching. I mean, I, I, I did this, uh, 
class where I invited each of my colleagues to come in and teach one of their favorite texts. And Earl must have been, I don't know, maybe 68 at the time. And he came in and taught to build a fire. And so he'd been teaching for like, you know, 40 years. And he still lit up. He still glowed. He still grinned like a madman at the story and managed to, you know, pass it on to the students. And I, I was just, I mean, he was a fantastic, fantastic colleague. Uh, we bonded actually over our love of Melville. So, yeah, we got to talk about Pierre and Moby Dick, but I could tell you more old stories. But, mm-hmm. but one of the things he, he got me doing is he got me teaching uh, the red one mm-hmm. and also a, uh, a little story called War, which is only about three pages long. I'm going to track that uh, down. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's just a vignette uh, from late. It's like 1912 or so. Um, and uh, I, taught, I did a literature of war class and taught that, and the students really liked it. And he was always uh, – the novel he was teaching was usually The Sea Wolf. So I read that when I was in centenary and just loved it. It was just a, a really intense, mad, mythic – I mean, he reads like uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. I mean, it's really, really striking. Um, but what really clinched it for me was – was, uh, was moving to Vermont and living in the extreme cold. And so rereading London's <laughs> winter stuff, like, oh, absolutely. I and mean, there's this phrase I, I, every January, February I come back to is this, uh, this bit from, uh, excuse me, I read this. Um, uh, it's from late in the story. Um, his pace of four miles an hour had kept his heart pumping blood to the surface of his body and to all the extremities. But the instant he stopped, the action of the pump eased down. The cold cold of space smoke the unprotected of the planet and he being on that unprotected tip received the full force of the blow the blood of his body recoiled before it the blood was alive like the dog and like the dog it wanted to hide away and cover itself up from the fearful cold i'm like yes you know that's one of the science fiction i i I always i I argue that that story is a science fiction story and so much of his stuff it's about it's about looking at reality and saying what are the actual things going on here it's not about you know it's not about the relationships between people and whether or not they love their father or it's a good idea to go to university it's about look at this fascinating phenomena like psychology psychology or economics or or in this case, it, that is that is a story I pair when I when I talk about that story. I pair it with um, the cold equations, which is ah. which oh, is a, yeah. a, a terribly That's written it. story, but a very important story. It's mm-hmm. it's very important yes. to understand that that is a hard science fiction story, and it doesn't care about a whole bunch of things that normally we should care about when we're reading fiction, um, but. The difference is when you read Jack London, the prose is gorgeous, right? It's yeah. it's it's muscles uh, in motion, and it's the beauty of those uh, those motion to get you to understand concepts that other writers could just write down and you just forget about completely. But when he does it, it becomes like that's that's the power of of that story, and I think it's recognized by a lot of people. Um, and that's why it's taught in school. Uh, uh-huh. It's not just taught because it's short, because it's not a, even that short. It's taught because it has that man against nature really showing it, but in a way that's in the extremists, right? That 
you feel it when you read that story. I've been in cold, but not that cold. But I also know that, um, you know, we are just animals and we're machines. And at certain temperatures, we don't operate anymore. It, that, that's a story about spacesuits, essentially, right? And the need for yeah, them. Yeah. It's amazing. But so are, are yeah. any of you familiar with Huxley? Yeah. Uh, Thomas yeah. Huxley's views on evolution and social Darwinism. I thought you yeah. talking about Aldous Huxley. Yeah, no, Thomas no Huxley but, so I, I'm, I'm holding this book. I don't have Labor's book in hand, but I have Gene, Gene Campbell-Reesman's book, Jack London's Racial Lives, which was a few years before, I think 2006, 2007 or so. And this is, unlike Labor's book, it's not a biography, it's really an intellect, it's a, it's, it's a literary critique uh, of, of race in London's ah. work. And it's, it's, I think this, of anything I've read, and I guess I haven't read that much on London's views on race, but this seemed very convincing to me when I read it. But it does have a section here on Huxley. And the argument Campbell makes here is that London was on the Huxley side of kind of the evolution, social Darwinian debate. And here's what she writes. Let me find the paragraph. Huxley most co co cogently voiced his disagreement with Spencer in Evolution and Ethics, a 1893 romance lecture at Oxford University. Huxley saw nature unsuitable as a moral guide for humans. Social Darwinism was a fallacy for social progress, really meant a checking of the cosmic process at every step. And then I'm jumping ahead of it. Inspired by Darwin's tangled bank metaphor, Huxley likened human civilization to a carefully tendered garden established in the wilderness, opposing the horticultural and the, to the cosmic process, giving the gardens artificial conditions of life better adapted to the cultivated plants that are the condition of the state of nature. There'd always be a contest between the state of nature and the state of art in an organized polity, and this would continue until the state of nature eventually prevailed. Hmm. Though humanity cannot be Comforted with visions of the ultimately vicious battle, London agreed with Huxley that nevertheless, ethics was the way the human race should perceive, proceed, and that it should be on perpetual guard against following theories of perfection such as Spencer's. Mm. And it's interesting when you read London's work, Spencer is much more visible. It's all over Martin Eden for sure, but you don't. I don't remember him ever talking about. Huxley, and if he really was more influenced by Huxley's view of social Darwinism, I, mean, I think it's interesting, right? This idea that we need a gardener almost, right? And if you just let the garden go to, you know, the, the like the Darwinian logic, you're going to end up with weeds, nothing good there. And that was Huxley's argument in that essay. I, I I'm more familiar with Wells than I am with Huxley, but I know that Wells was was also highly influenced by Huxley. Um, yeah. And I, I like to see how Wells, he, he has, a, again, like a very broad um, swath of things to, to look at. But it's funny how you can see when they tackle the same subject, they come at it and, and achieve different results with the same. So there's a story that's mentioned in the book here called The Shadow and the Flash. Um, yeah, which is Jack London's take on the Invisible Man, um, and it's a short story. But it, instead of having one Invisible Man, it has two, and it tackles invisibility from two different ways. But it also is about a, you know, it's basically a sibling rivalry story, 
And yeah. it's brutal in the way that uh, almost makes what is uh, supposed to be one of Wells' most brutal characters seem not brutal. It's it's incredibly interesting yeah. to mm. see the the mind at work um, in these in these fictions that come out. So the Scarlet Plague again. This is something I didn't I don't think was mentioned in the book, but I saw you know I when I read that book I was blown away. The Scarlet Plague is it's not it's not super short, but it it's not it's no, yeah. novelette length I think, but it's it's a, a dystopia utopia. Well, I guess dystopia, um, and it's it is incredibly interesting as a social Darwinian Darwinian document, right? It's narrated from the point of view of of the survivor uh, looking at his generations of of descendants in his tribe, the chauffeur tribe, right? Is, is that, yeah, that's right, and mm-hmm. and. They're treating him like an old idiot because he's interested in book reading. <laughs> he's no good at hunting anymore. His teeth are all knocked out. Now it all makes sense, right? Like reading this biography really helped me understand where a lot of the Jack London stuff is coming from. It's fascinating. I mean, I did quite... one of the Klondike stories was these old people looking back at their history. What was that one called? Hmm. So um, many Klondike stories. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, and, it, it was more it's more allegorical, so it's it's not as exciting. Uh, it's kind of an allegorical, another allegory on socialism. So it's a bit like the, the Iron Heel in that way. Have you guys read Moon? Oh, the strength of the strong. That's it. It's a strength oh, of the yes, strong. Oh yes, the strength of the, the. Oh, that's a um. That's isn't that a uh, caveman story? Yeah, it's actually a caveman story. Yeah, right. yeah, I've read that one. I think. Um, have you guys read Moonface? This is the one I, I like to introduce kids to Jack London t- with. Yeah, yeah. No, oh. it's so good. It's 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 a story of uh, it's subtitled a story of moral antipathy, <laughs> and it's I, I think of it as Jack London doing uh, the the cask of Amontillado, uh, because there's this character, the narrator, who hates. Uh, a guy who lives next to, you know, a neighbor, a farming neighbor. Um, but he hates him for no good reason. Um, he says he has a moon face, and that's reason to hate him enough. Um, and he just goes after this guy in very devious ways and ends up with victory, right? But we walk away from it thinking, that guy's a monster. But I'm also laughing the whole time. <laughs> like one going, he it, it's almost like it's it's like reading a psycho a psychopath journal and and you know being amused by it. He turns us into the monster. I I think there's another uh, there's a Guy de Montpassant story that does the same thing um, about a judge who who convicts the wrong people of murder. Um, in fact, murders that he's doing um, and and gets away with it at the end and we only find out that this is the case because we're reading his his journal diaries you know and and that seeing into the mind of this is the empathy that he's so good at seeing into the mind of the other um is why when he writes stories from 
what would now be considered problematic point of view is you know, what's the one of my prom dress is not your <laughs> whatever it is or no it's the other way around my culture is not your prom dress right that cultural appropriation <laughs> thing that he's so good at um mm-hmm. is very taboo today but the 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 difference is he's doing it for everything and everybody right he, he he's not mm-hmm. just doing it for for uh you know the psychopath down the street he's also doing it for dogs which he's in, I, I think he's he's got their psychology nailed basically myself i i think he knows exactly what's going on he's observed what's going on and he says this is how it must be going on in their heads they're unable to communicate uh and yet they are it's amazing uh, <laughs> basically yeah, it's kind of what makes a sea wolf work it's it's really a novel you have to read mm-hmm. that he's such an odious character but he you're kind of well, on well, his side for much of the novel and humphrey the, the the i guess the narrator i think i think it's a first person he's always giving these academic arguments on why wolf larsen is wrong with all his values mm-hmm. but they all kind of bounce off now in the right. end you do realize that Wolf Larsen is completely odious and not a path forward for any society. It's certainly not a model to embrace. But he's, he's, he's still very likable. He's like Tony Soprano that way. <laughs> That's a good point. I've never, I've never heard that comparison before, Evan. That's, That's interesting. A good yeah. one. Hey, who played, uh, who played Wolf Larsen in the first Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. About it? It. There's so many, I, I was amazed how many Seawolf movies. Edward G. Robinson. There you go. Yeah, oh, he would make yeah, a good uh, Wolf Larsen, I think. Yeah. No, it's. I, I mean, the I mean, Larson is so appealing in so many ways because he's so energetic, he's so fierce, he never gives up. And by the end of the of the novel, he's like a, you know, a Hollywood slasher movie villain. You know, he just won't die. You know. Um, well, yeah, and he's and got all those internal problems. He's got some kind of weird disease. I, I don't know if it's ever explained. I guess. <laughs> I'd like to reread it just to uh, to dig into that part. Yeah, there, no, maybe he was having some kind of epileptic fits and things. Like he went blind, which seemed to have was it like an internal problem. Yep. yep. So, yeah. Maybe maybe Jack London was a precog. No, I, 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 I was <laughs> going to die, and that's why he did so much. And he also <laughs> these characters that that kind of look like him, but not quite. He, he his investments didn't quite work out the way a precog should, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. It. I. I find. Um. I find it really interesting to, to just to see the psychology at work. I. I this is why I love reading Philip K. Dick. Is the same thing. Is is you say, oh, I see it now. Like, uh, but I'm doing it in reverse order here. Um. So I read all Jack London stuff, and then I. Yeah. Uh, by the way, there was a biopic of him, in world, during World War II that, really left out almost all the socialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a great movie actually, um, but it is public domain. It's out there. Um, but I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to just show like, there's a story I also think is terrific called uh, "A Thousand Deaths." It's his first science yeah. fiction story, mm-hmm. maybe one of his first yeah. stories published. It's in the Black Cat in 1899, so before he um, he got his major success, and and that's a story about a guy who swims out to well not swims out that's in the book um it's a guy who falls off a oh no jumps off of a ship because he's uh what's that called when you you're leaving your duty 
He's still alive. He's no, he's not he's a, a deserter. He's a deserter. Yeah, he's a deserter of a ship. Um, he jumps off uh, the boat in the harbor at San Francisco, but gets towed out to sea, and he's drowning. And then he's picked up by um, another ship and brought back to life via some hoses and tubes, basically a, a machine that can bring people back to life who've drowned. And he finds out that the guy who's running the ship is his father, but his father doesn't recognize him. Um, and he is taken away to a tropical uh, southern Pacific Ocean island and um, experimented upon uh, in experiments of death, right? He's tortured uh, to death a thousand different ways, and he's always brought back to life. And his his father doesn't recognize him. He's like, wow, this is... The, almost everything in this story happened, except for the actual dying part. Um, I guess he only gets that once, but um, <laughs> the fact that, uh, you know, the, the father doesn't recognize who he is and and getting those two letters from his dad or his the guy who claims not to be i am not your father because i was impotent at that time like jesus christ that is brutal stuff right you imagine Mm -hmm. receiving and writing those letters oh my god yeah yeah i i I couldn't decide i don't know if jack wanted to decide whether or not is that true or not was i mean or I mean, what was Jack London's father just trying to pass off his paternity? Was he not Jack London's father? The Earl carefully doesn't come to a conclusion. But, but I'm curious, especially, I mean, Brian and Evan, and I guess, Jesse, you all know about Jack London, more than Jack London than I do. I guess I'm the real tyro on this podcast. I mean, is this, was he Jack London's father or not? I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, um, I don't know. There, there was a, a problem with records. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, records got destroyed in the uh, big San Francisco quake, so it's hard to determine. Um, but uh, thinking of uh, London's own life and his own marriage and his own uh, infidelity and the infidelity that um, his quote-unquote father uh, was – he had six marriages, right? I mean, this is exceeding Philip K. Dick in terms of marriages, right? That's uh-huh. that's a lot of marriages, and and sounds like he didn't get very many divorces either, um, which apparently was a thing back then. <laughs> it's just you move states and you set up shack shack up with somebody else, and and his mom, hard mom, uh, she would be a hard mom to have, I think, very difficult mother, um, but just his own relationship with his kids and how screwed up. Uh, his relationship with his 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 the mother of his children's, you know. I don't know. Uh, do you think this is like a family curse? Because he certainly was as Randy as his his purported dad, and he had kind of had a parallel life to his his purported dad. With the, you know, I think he was was Charmaine, um, you know, being uh, seduced. Uh, I think that. It's possible that it was his dad, just based on the evidence of of how he, you know he was a prolific job hunter, and you know this almost seems like these are it's either the whole species are like this, including you and me. Oh dear. <laughs> or uh, it's yeah, it's his dad. 
but I, well, isn't the seven-year itch kind of a, a universal? It's definitely a thing, right? I mean, that's why it's a term. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, like, I forget what it was, but there's a term, similar term in Chinese. But the, in Jack London, that's in dog years, so it's only seven months or whatever, <laughs> right? It's very fast. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, you can think about you know the, you know, this is a. London is always an, an, maybe the most masculine American writer for centuries. Um, and yet he, and if you read through Earl's biography, he's constantly um, connect. I mean, early on, he's looking for role models, uh, men to admire mm-hmm. or who, whose girlfriends he can steal. <laughs> um, and, and he doesn't, you know, so in a sense, he's got that, that model thing of even thinking back to a father, which is, for many boys, the the ultimate role model, mm-hmm. um, and the and the men he's with, I mean, oyster pirates, right? He's he's not he's not hanging out with uh, with the, the the what we think of as Victorian society. Yeah, except when he does, right? With the uh, that's what the whole thing in the Iron Heel is about, right? Is is that he's that's I guess why that novel feels so weird is that he's the man of action who's in the in the uh, the salon and it feels strange right he he's feels What's out his of name? place mm-hmm. uh, everhard everhard right, right. well it, oh, the other thing with that novel though is he it's the the narrator is a woman and the main character is is this man it's well, it's a it's woman a, talking about how wonderful <laughs> this man is or, well kind, kind, of, kind of like kind of like um kind of like Frankenstein, you know, which is uh, yeah. you know, uh, of women reporting on, on the doings of men, and then this is a this is it's kind of like Doctor Who. This is um, uh, <laughs> I mean, Iron Heel is all about worshiping the man, you know how doc, how with Steve Moffat, all the all the characters are like, oh, the Doctor is the greatest, he's the best, blah blah blah, and 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 so you a lot of that. Ever hard is ever hard, you know, yeah. he can do yeah. it. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it seems he took that name from a family name, right? So. It has that excuse. Oh, even even better, even better, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I, I I I have to get going, gentlemen, in a, in a, in a few oh. minutes. But I, I, I want to say I, I just I mean I'm biased. I mean I I, I really loved working with uh, Earl Labor, and I heard his voice in, in so many of these passages. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was it was just a delight reading this. For me. I mean I'm, I'm not an Americanist. I mean American history and literature for me um, are are late passions, and so it's just for me it just it just connected so many things together. It illuminated uh, London's work for me. It encouraged me to read more London. Uh, yeah, I, I was just, uh, I, I was just, I was just smitten with this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the biography definitely is a good. I mean, I mean, I could see the passion and love and joy and fierceness that Labor had for his, for his subject, and and the the, the book is definitely aim to encourage people to explore more of London's work and I need to get on that at some point it's also in my copious free time Brian this is labor was not a young man when he wrote this right this is a this is a life labor it is it is uh, quite literally um no Earl was born in 1928 uh yeah it's it's you know almost a contemporary of London you know he's only yeah He's only ten years away, and and he, um, yeah, and yeah, this is takes to write a good biography. It takes that's impressive being in someone's head that long. And apparently, I, I there's, anyone yeah, there's been like biography. twenty biographies or something according to this book. Well, and keep keep in mind that the yeah, Earl was 
he was teaching four classes a semester. He was helping run a college. Um, he, he had families. I mean, very, very busy guy. And, uh, and yet, you know, every year when I talked to him, he was constantly talking about Jack, about, you know, doing trips to go to Jack London country in California. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh yeah, this is a uh, this is a crowning achievement for a life work. It's it's gonna probably go down as the book about it, and and I know one of, I I actually have the biography that he slams so hard, and the one that his criticism of uh, uh, Irving Stone uh, is the one that sort of drew him the attention of of people who knew London himself. Uh, that's uh, that book is called Sailor on Horseback. Um, I've yeah. picked it up as a paperback. It's got a great picture of Jack London painted on the cover. Um, and it's the one at the end that Irving Stone, it's it's called a novel of Jack London, right? It's not a biography yeah. exactly, because I guess he didn't do all that much research. He's, you know, a famous novelist. But he, that's the one that says, you know, he killed himself with opiates, which um, it seems is completely debunked in this book. Not that uh, he's against drugs. The dream sandwich sequence in this book uh, just had me in fits. <laughs> I couldn't believe how funny that was. And uh, that plays a role in books like The Star Rover. And uh, I think uh, I I think everybody should read Jack London because he's brilliant. He's just he's he's ma- mapping reality in so many places and so many ideas. Are we done? Well, we're we're all all of us going to stop talking. We're just going to start reading. Uh-huh. Sorry, I mean that's a. Yep. We should be reading more Jack London. Definitely. That's that's the moral. That's the moral of this biography. <laughs> well, grab the red. Everybody, read the red one. You'll 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 enjoy that. It's good. Powerful. Right. Well, thank you, friends. Thank Take you. Take care and thank, uh, thank you, um, Brian, yeah, for bringing this to our attention. Talk to you. Mm-hmm. Hey, have a uh, go go on an adventure, everybody. Uh-huh. You know what? Uh, I'm I'm kind of afraid of them now. <laughs> I don't want to get burned out like that, poor guy. Well, yeah. Bring antibiotics. Bring antibiotics. Oh man. I, I, I'm contemplating a very expensive adventure next year. I don't know if I can. I have the money or can get the time. It's, it's just a, the amount of gout. I, I'm gonna be worried about getting. I'm gonna have to cut down on my alcohol like even more. Be manly. <laughs> Channel the spirit of Everhart. Go for it. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. Bye. Bye bye. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Good job. All right, I'm pressed. But Jesse, have you read Sailor and Horseback? I started to read it, and then I realized I shouldn't bother. Um, uh, so, yeah. Well, I'm thinking of this this tradition of of biography in the United States mm-hmm. of of kind of because the America doesn't have the aristocracy, right? right? So you need these kind of democratic heroes. So there's this tradition of biography that kind of uplifts these figures, like the. The Washington and the cherry tree, mm. and Lincoln never die, and this stuff. And there's, there's kind of, it'd be interesting to look into more of this tradition of, of over the top. 
I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking. And does that have a place in a democracy? You know, now I guess we have superheroes and things, so we don't need this. Well, I was thinking how close, um, you know, if if we're looking for people who are like him, obviously Mm -hmm. you can make comparisons to Melville with his his ship's journeys. But he he comes away like, (laughs) he comes away as a different person. Uh, However, I was thinking how parallel life stories were with Poe. Um, Poe had that quasi-drinking problem. He's had all sorts of stories told about him that are questionable. Um, And he had that range of stories. Right now I'm reading um, with some students, uh, uh, what's it called? The Maelstrom story. Um... Uh, a Descent into the Maelstrom, which is mm-hmm. considered a science fiction story, which is pretty interesting. Um, but it's uh, it's all about sailing, and uh, and he had that broad sort of experience of being a, a manly man too. One of the things that Poe did that is very Jack London esque is swim out, um, you know, while he was at he was. Uh, at West Point, he was he would make it a point to be able to swim farther out into the water than anyone else, as sort of a, sh- a show of strength. And then he has these sea stories that come up again and again, and he has um, I mean he doesn't have the breadth of of travel I think, but he did go to Scotland, right. And he died young, and he had this sort of uh, romance of women, but in a slightly different way. I don't rem- I don't know if uh, Jack London wrote much poetry, if any, but I assume he did. I just haven't got to it yet. But I don't know of any. Yeah, they're they're kind of similar in respects that you know their relationship with their family, their growing up, their you know the fact that his parents are sort of difficult and that causes difficulty for him sort of the a curse <laughs> that's upon people and uh it's funny uh, thinking about how even jack london puts it you know if if i had got that offer for being a mailman oh yeah we should we should save that for the podcast well, we'll maybe maybe we're still in the podcast we'll find out i i stopped recording okay Sorry. well I was just thinking, like, he, he even talks about that in this 1909 uh, interview, uh, about had he just received that a little bit earlier, we might not have Jack London at all as a, as a figure. He would be, a, you know, just have had a couple of stories published in the local papers, local magazines, and then been a mailman. And that is a tremendous loss if that if that had happened and it makes me think maybe there's something to this and i i, I like having people have hard lives that seems like a really bad cost right but i don't think poe would be poe without some of that damn hardship that he had to suffer through oh i agree entirely and that's kind of scary that we might be ironing out all the uh, problems if, if we if we uh, 
ever achieve the socialist dream. Well, this is what something the, the the left always says, right? Like how many Mozarts are working in a? It's a question. In a cotton mill somewhere, right? A textile mill. Yeah. But you know, if if you're right that you need the hardship to create the art, then then we need that. And then the kind of the the basic income folks who kind of imagine a utopia of art and culture mm-hmm. if we just liberate the working class from labor. I know, but actually, London makes that argument sort of in the Iron Heel. Mm-hmm. That it's and the apostate that short story, the apostate, mm-hmm. sort of has. I mean, would I? I kind of don't see the value in work that that some people do, but I guess I I see the value in in kind of the life lived by London. It seems to be though. I see how something... that connects to his work, but I don't know how much of it was work, like. He, you know the actual drudgery of labor. Well, I think it's the reaction to it, and and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I I don't think it makes sense to have you know great grandmothers working in the factories to, you know, produce capital. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think it seems to be some. There's some some sort of connection with childhood, that seems you know obviously that's where everybody starts. Not everybody finishes there, but that's where everybody starts. So we all have that in common if we're still around. Um, but it seems like you know. To me, it's much harder to acquire uh, the knowledge as I get older than it is when I was young. I, I seem to be able to absorb it. And the life lessons um, are harder to absorb at older older age. So there's something it's almost like we need to have a social safety net that's hidden away from the kids to make <laughs> I mean, Mm-hmm. My, I had my father die when I was young. I had to have a paper route. My uncles encouraged me to do so, um, and I'm like, I don't want to do that. I just want the money so I can buy my comic books. Like, <laughs> and they're saying, no, you need to take responsibility. You need to do, right. I don't know if that would have helped me or not, but I know a lot of other people have different lives because they had it easier, right? And I'm not saying that. Delivering newspapers at five o'clock every morning was the hardest thing ever, but I had other hardships too. So uh, I'm saying maybe, maybe there is value to people in in not having uh, everything being easy. On the other hand, um, we we definitely feel the pain when it isn't. And how many people were not turned into Jack London who had the same experience, right? The people of the abyss, yeah. uh, those folks. Oh, yeah. Uh, he seems to be the exception actually, rather than the rule. But that's actually a book you can throw at the people who want to say London's a racist. Because the stuff he says about the people of the East End, yeah. it's it's just as nasty as the stuff he says about non-whites. Yeah. And, a lot of his other well, work. I think the problem is is engaging with people who are operating on that level is useless because they just haven't read any books. They they're yeah. operating on an on an ideology that is what somebody said that they thought was made sense, and I've come to the conclusion you, you don't bother with them because you know they're not interested in facts. They're not interested Nothing in arguments. They're They've got a, a set up things, and obviously that it's not going to work out. But a lot of people <laughs> seem to operate uh, their lives based upon just being assholes and 
or shit posters or whatever it is. Well, you, you mentioned the, the my culture is not your prom dress thing. Right, right. I I don't think you don't follow me on Facebook, but no, I actually respond. I'm not on Facebook because the the chipao, this thing they're complaining about, mm-hmm. is a modern dress. It's sure. the equivalent of the Chinese flapper. Yeah. In the 1920s, it it's not it's not like women in villages were making these kinds of things. And <laughs> and actually, the Chinese culturally appropriated that from the Manchu people. <laughs> it's it, it, initially, it, yeah. It, it, the, that's the that's the problem with these things is is anybody who goes around doing that they they basically aren't interested. They just they want yeah. attention. I I had somebody email or not email tweet something to me. The only reason they saw it is because somebody else retweeted it because it was popular. And if I had done what mm-hmm. the, they suggested, um, he would never have seen it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It, it was the way I put it out that allowed them to even have a complaint. And I started to reply and I said, what would you, uh, you know, I was typing it up and I said, what would you have me do, right? And then I realized that the the... I was engaging with somebody who wasn't interested in the answer. Right? Wasn't interested in mm-hmm. in anything that I nothing I could have done uh, would have been wise for me or for that person. So uh, it, it's kind of sad to have to shut things off like that. But the <laughs> the fact that um, somebody gets attention for shitting on somebody else's, you know prom dress I don't know, whatever it is 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 because people aren't reading books is what i'm thinking because who has time yeah. for that otherwise right i i would never go around looking for tweets to shit on i've got <laughs> i've got stuff to do i got books to read yeah how can people not want to read i, I I don't get that. I, I and that's the amazing I mean, thing is I, I right. Just, everyone's I just exposed kind of, to it, and almost nobody picks it up. I'm I'm finally reading Dune, and it's oh good. I really feel bad. I haven't read it earlier. Oh yeah. It's like all my friends have read that back when they were fifteen, sixteen. That's and the right I time. should have read it with them. Yep. But it's not 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 like I wasn't reading at the time. It's just there's only so much time in life, right? That's true. You're missing on so many stories. That's true. And it's uh, that's what I was thinking about that Irving Stone book is like. Okay, I think I've got, you know, I'd like to do a lot of research before I start reading a book because I'm, I'm a slow reader. It takes me time. And I just worry, like, I want to read. Uh, there's a bunch of books by Glendon I haven't read. I haven't read The Sea Wolf, and I haven't read, get this, White Fang. You haven't read White Fang? I know. And I love. I think it's better than Call of the Wild. I love Call of the Wild, and I know I'm going to love White Fang. Because I know everything about it, right? I've read, I've read uh, the Wikipedia entry and I've read the comics <laughs> version, right? I just haven't actually read the the story. But knowing how much I like Jack London out at the top of his game, I'm going to love this book. And it's the idea of reading it is is a delight, right? That I'm going to have a, a possibility of enjoying another Jack London and for the first time is something that pleases me. Uh, and yet, you know, it wasn't that long ago that for the first time I read uh, White, uh, not White Fang, um, Moby Dick. Uh, and I, I did a show on that with Brian, and that's a book where, you know, if you don't, if you haven't read it and you've, you've died before reading it and you're a reader, 
you've made a massive error, right? Yeah. Because that is a book that w- must be read. I'm not sure I have to read everything. Oh, like, I'm not sure I need to read Canterbury to Tales. On, I, I, I kind of like it, but sorry, what did you say, Evan? No, those Mel- Melville's my my Desert Island books. Yeah. So what, what's another good one of his to read besides? Uh, you guys talked about Taipei. I think Omu, but I don't know. That might be idiosyncratic of me. Okay. Because I I studied so much the sailors. It, it's about these kind of wandering white people in the Pacific. Omu. Okay. And these deserters hanging out in jails in Tahiti and getting drunk, and the the wandering preachers going through, and these castaways who start like a potato farm on some Pacific island. It's and the thing I love about that book is it's. Actually, if you look at the first three of Melville's novels, mm-hmm. Taipei, Omu, and Marty, they're all about people quitting their jobs constantly. <laughs> and in fact, the very last thing in Marty is someone saying, like, I found Utopia, but eh, I'm going to go on, sail on to the next island. Wow. So they all kind of fit together. They're, they're kind of loose, loosely connected, plot-wise. It's always one guy leaving. What did, uh... So those three are, are a lot of fun, but... What, what do you guys make of the idea that Jack London was uh, manic-depressive? Obviously, he had a depressive nature. Oh, he, no, that's... Actually, more than alcohol, I think John Barleycorn is about depression. Yeah, he he de- he definitely, I think, was on the spectrum. And, well, he, he has some sort... Obviously, some sort of massive mania for writing and producing and, and doing stuff, right? But um, even when he's depressed, he seems to be doing stuff. Obviously, he's he's changing things up, which I, is probably a good thing to do. Um, with you know, and that's why he, he's got so many jobs and and wives and all that. But uh, he also doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I, I mean, listen to this. This is from John Barleycorn, and now comes John Barleycorn with the curse he lays upon the imaginative man who is lusty with life and desires to live. John Barleycorn senses white logic, the argent messenger of truth beyond truth, the antithesis of life, cruel and bleak as interstellar space, yeah. pulseless and frozen as absolute zero, dazzling with the frost of irrefragable logic and unforgettable fact. John, Bo- John Barleycorn does not let the dreamer dream, deliver, live. He destroys birth and death and dissipates to mist the paradox of night. And he goes on like this. Wow. Of course, his conclusion to John Barleycorn is to go through life, drink in hand. So I, I think it's <laughs> that he makes peace with it at the end. I don't know. Is he just justifying his addiction at that point? Yeah. It, well, it that sounds be, like but, he was an alcoholic, too. Yeah. And he sort of admits that here, although he denies it. He, he kind of holds off the, the, the I'm an alcoholic till the very last moment in the book. Right. It's, it's a really... Interesting. It's not very long. I think it's like 100 pages. And the effect of alcohol, you know, that's a, that's the other thing is that it takes, it seems to take centuries for people to deal with alcohol. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I read a book um, by Tom Standage about uh, about different kinds of drinks, and when you know the British get gin and they they start really into gin, that that has repercussions that last centuries right you don't get over it in 10 minutes um and you know the reaction of uh, was it was it the 21st amendment or 19 whatever with uh uh 
Uh, yeah, prohibition. Prohibition. Nineteenth Amendment, right? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not American, so. Eighteen? No, it's eighteen. Okay. Eighteen. One of those. Nineteenth was women's suffrage. Twentieth was re- rejected. I mean, it, it just has echoing consequences. So a lot of Canadian families that are rich are rich because they were uh, exporting alcohol to mm-hmm. the states, right? Um, during that period. And well, agriculture. There's a theory uh, on agriculture that basically agriculture was to have a steady supply of. <laughs> The ingredients oh, for brewing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've heard, I've heard all these theories about theory. Yeah. yeah. But that's just be, one of them. Yeah. Well, beer, beer as a civilizing influence. Um, yeah. Well, it's, and, it's, and certainly, it's, it's, whole, it's certainly something people rebellion. do to avoid pain at work, right? The, the, the theory of small beer that comes up in that Tom Standage book um, is that people are drinking alcohol throughout the day to avoid dying from the water that's contaminated with feces, right? The alcohol kills a lot of the shit that's in there, but also keeps you, gives you a nice buzz so that you're, you're okay to keep going for more hours. And we see that in, in this book with Jack London constant, constantly chewing and smoking tobacco um, and drinking. This is a way to get past the pain. What, what's he say about his teeth to his sister is... Um, I I will quit chewing tobacco if my teeth didn't hurt, right? But I need to, to dull the pain of my teeth. I was like, oh, man, right? But that's true. People people take it like a drug, uh, tobacco, because it is a drug. It, it do, has an effect that is desirable for them, and that's why they're doing it. It's not because it's casual. So, um I'm all in favor of the uh, marijuana being legalized so people don't end up in prison over it. But I'm, I'm thinking that the effects of it, uh, whatever the effects are, and there are obviously there are a lot of known effects, are going to be with us for a couple of centuries. Because I think we're mostly over whiskey now, and we're mostly over gin now, and we've mostly got a handle on beer i don't see people uh, you know maybe wines got a little out of control again right but this the the relationship with drugs and and as a way to avoid the body and the and and the pain of reality uh has been around since there's been an ability to make this stuff happen and so the way people talk about marijuana as being safe 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 uh, that's true. It seems to be fairly for smoking, but safety isn't the only thing, right? There's what what effects does it have? What effects does it have on the family? Because um, alcohol has certainly caused a lot of repercussions, and I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's interesting. It's very interesting. I think that's why this book is so interesting. We see we can see where we came from in a certain sense. Looking at it, I agree. I, I, I mean, I when you said let's do a biography on Jack London, I, was, I thought, wait, what? And I, I was glad. Yeah, I learned a lot about learn about about him and his life and how he came to write all this fiction, and it cleared up a lot of my preconceptions of who he was and what he was all about. Evan, did you uh, did you uh, know? I mean, I was fairly familiar with Jack London's travels in Asia 
um, for his correspondence uh, prior. Mm-hmm. I had read a lot a lot about that. Um, how how being in Asia yourself, how how do you relate to that stuff? Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, I always you know kind of look at him as a literary figure. So I try to see where his representations of Asians show up mm-hmm. in the, in the novel. But he he was it was the the Russo Japanese War, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That he was the first yeah. Yep. And he was yeah, like, up in Korea. I don't know. Being in Asia doesn't, I don't think, if, you know, affect how I look at it that much. No, the, he's uh, not a figure in Asia. Like, you know, like. Well, they read Call of the Wild. That's it. That's all people know. Yeah. So, like. like they don't know my name. They know Call of the Wild. Right. You got to give them the Chinese title, though. Or, you know, or Anne of Green Gables is, is a global book, right? It, it's a huge mm-hmm. hit in Japan, right? Which is very strange, considering it's about, you know, rural prince edward island and a girl who has an imagination i guess girls have imaginations all over the world but um uh, jack london is really good i think it like he has actually there's an, a story um about a chinese slave who's convicted of yeah the chinagu uh the chinagu right yeah um yeah. who's convicted of that a crime I can't, he didn't I can't commit really sorry I skip it. I skip it whenever I get into in touch. I can't read that story again. It's it's brutal, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's it's sort of about the process of of yeah being broken and the stuff about blackbirding in here. Um, that's a mm-hmm. that's something that's completely erased from school history, right? <laughs> Nobody talks about that here. Is that an issue? Like, does anybody talk about that in Asia? No. no, I mean comfort women in Japan. That's the most you get about right. Okay. Okay. Um, but there's a wonderful book. I don't know. It's probably ten years old. Called White. Or uh, no, so the Black Pacific. It's called mm, about blackbirding. I think and it's about it's about it's it's pretty brutal. It's about how all these Confederate like former slaveholders and people who made their oh. money off slavery moved to the Pacific after the Civil War ended, right. and they just continued being slave traders in the Pacific. Involved in the coolie trade and all that, and with the Kanakas. I actually heard about this um, from an action adventure movie called Nathan Hayes. Have you guys seen this movie? No. Uh, uh. It's a 1983 swashbuckling adventure film. You know, set in the late 19th century. Um, it stars uh, uh, who's that guy? Tommy Lee Jones um, as a sort of a blackbirder. Um, and it has the typical sort of it was to try and make money out of Indiana Jones, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But what was interesting is is that it actually mentioned blackbirding and it has the the guy's a bad guy, right? Yeah. And and it was like it's a it's sort of a a hidden name for a real the continuation of slavery, which apparently is still going on, right? Um, yep. It's hidden away under different names and stuff, but it's 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 a global trade and um, it's 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 like we need um, one of those uh, untold history of the United States for the whole world. We don't just need uh, um, more more of untold history of the United States. We need it for everything because it's going on everywhere. 
need more mm-hmm. books like that. Yeah, I, wh- you know the, the untold histories. I, 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 whenever I see these books, mm-hmm. I have to get a chuckle because it's like the unknown, like the never told story of this, and it's like. I learned that in graduate school. Right. right. But th- that's the point. No one reads, right? right? So these are unknown stories, untold stories. Yeah, I, but it's not taught in high school, right? If it's not taught in high school, it doesn't exist, right? Uh, when I was I, I was learning Canadian stuff in, you know, in Canadian schools, we get a bunch of stuff. And so I, I, I can teach it now really easily because I, uh, I don't know, it's somehow in imprinted into my brain i can tell you all about the world war one battles with you know canadians doing this and blah 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 and i'm like this is all propaganda because the really interesting parts they they just they put them in there but there's two sentences right and then it's not that it's untold it's it's untested (laughs) there's no if it doesn't show up in school um and and it's not for those purposes it 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 isn't in the public consciousness until it becomes a a movie or something, right? This is what really scares me about teaching in China, uh-huh. the politics of it. I, I don't I gotta talk to someone about this yeah. because I know like this because I'm teaching AP World History and Geography, right? And I'm getting a lot of money to do it. I'm getting a pretty good salary yeah. by Chinese standards. Plus my housing's covered and everything, so I'm really there to save money. And to make money to buy my 40 acres <laughs> or 80 acres know, someday. You're going to build a wolf house, make sure it's fireproof, don't yeah. leave the oily rags I, I, out. I kind of want to see the uh, ruins of Wolf House now. Well, that'd be a place mm-hmm. to go. It's, it's a state park, apparently, in California. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'd go. If I was in the area, yeah, I'd go take a look, Definitely. see what, see Jack Home, Jack Lynn's not quite. See those green three home. hills or whatever. But so what I've heard about. It, it's like the three T's, right? Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen. I, I mean, you can block that stuff out, right. but teaching history, you know, that's that's a very critical act often. This is how I've been trained yep. to teach history and to understand history. But what I've heard is like in China, it's even kind of taboo to say bad things about your own country. It's not so much you say bad things about China. Wow. That saying bad things about your own country, people kind of look at that. That puts you into the cross-eyed. class of a criticizer, right? Yeah, and and even if you crit, like if people say like what do you think of Chinese food, you can't say like I don't like tofu or I, I prefer using a fork than chopsticks because that's even like a subtle criticism of China wow. and they're sensitive about that. So of course that that's not going to be a problem either. But how do you teach something like nationalism, the history of nationalism, or empire? It's funny though without, you're going to be teaching AP history, which is not about China, right? It, it's going to have China well, it's in it. It's AP world history, so China's part of that. Yeah. And the, the curriculum, I looked at the curriculum, and I'm sure there's things there that, you know, these, these are elite students, I suppose, they're going to go to America. So maybe the government doesn't care that much about what these guys hear. Yeah. They care more about, I guess, what the working class I, people I, get. It's fascinating to me, you know, like, I didn't, I didn't end up as a tutor uh, on purpose. I just fell into it. Um, but it's it, it's so interesting that I spend all my time prepping kids for American and Canadian, but mostly American universities, so that they can go get an education and and become the the elite of, yeah. of the United States. Um, <laughs> and all around me, right, are a whole bunch of white kids um, 
not 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 as many as there used to be, but a whole bunch of white kids who aren't getting tutored, and who are just like blasé about you know whatever things are good mm-hmm. hockey, right? And all these Asian parents are like funneling money into British Columbia, into into me, into my pockets, so that I can help. And I, I I'm not I don't feel bad about it at all. I just find it fascinating that. There's these cultural sort of legacies, and and of course the kids who are who are raised here and born here, they'll they'll do what their parents say, who you know are second generation or whatever, but they're not into it the way the 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 moms who are pushing their kids to come over, and even the kids, a lot of them are really into it, right? It's it's, it's fascinating. You see these the cultural baggage that comes from what where you're raised and what time period and all that stuff has massive effects that people seem to not really feel at all right in the general mm-hmm. public there's no talk about this at all you know if you read the paper here it it talks about funding for the school district but it doesn't say how much of that you know, or, or it doesn't emphasize how fascinating it is that so many international students are here so that they can get a good, good Canadian education, so they get a good into a good university somewhere else. So this is this should be in the podcast because this is why the turn of the century is so fascinating right. in a way. This the the turn of the century was a global era that was followed by an era of protectionism and heavy nationalism and war and borders being closed. Look at American immigration history, right? In 1920 or so, they closed off the borders. They didn't open up until the 1960s. And and that's and then the globally, you have this turn to the right, you know, or the radical left in the case of the Soviet Union. But war, protectionism, walls being put up, that was the response to the last global era. And even on things like these students going abroad to get kind of the, the modern education, Think of how many great Chinese intellectuals studied abroad. Mm-hmm. Mao didn't, but Deng Xiaoping, he studied in France. Ho Chi Minh was in France. Lu Xuan, great Chinese writer, was in Japan. So that, you know, in these global eras, you know, people move around to get these education, to come back and bring this knowledge to their home country and to develop it. A lot of these the same themes that we see now, I think, have parallels at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And plus, if you think like... You're interested in like ur- the urbanization process, something London wrote a lot about in some of his short stories, right? We're act um, now we have much more migration to cities than we did a hundred years ago. It's a much more dramatic transformation mm-hmm. from rural to the urban now. If you look at India and China and these places, so all these things that it, it's very much I think maybe in a hundred years we can look back at these two eras and compare them. New new information technologies, the telegraph. The steamboat that allowed people to travel. It's, you know, what's scary is if we're going to, the response to our current global era is going to be similar to how people respond in the 20s and 30s. And and I just, I want to point out, you know, the that, that effect that you're going into, right? You're in Taiwan, which is a, it's not a small country population wise, but no, it's you're not. about to head into Chinese the, the small, country but- with people, right? It is yeah. the country with people. India's got a lot of people. China's got even more. But the thing is, is the the sheer numbers are incomprehensible, right? The number of cities in China with with 
with, uh, with a million people. Right. Yeah. Is is hundreds, right? And mm, we think of uh, I think of Vancouver as a big city. Um, for Canada, it's it's you know number three uh, in terms of population. But that that isn't an 80th of anything like what's going on in China, and their their advent into um, into into global supremacy is going to be uh, it's still unforeseeable, and I know how big it is, and I have the number anyways, and it's it's just like people are not seeing this, right? Uh, the, yeah. The, like the middle class in China. So if you look at per capita GDP in Chinese, China's still poor. Yes. But their middle class is like 300 million. But they actually have a, a robust and growing class middle class, whereas United States yeah. and Canada, you know, but more United States is, you know, it's sort of that idea of, an, right, there isn't, uh, the idea of a middle class in the United States is actually kind of not even a real thing anymore. Right? Yeah. Um, there, there is no real middle class. There's the, the workers um, and then the elites, and then the, the ultra elites, and you know those are not even really worth talking about because there's really there's the people who went to an Ivy League university and have a good job um, and work for the government or military contractor, <laughs> and then there's everybody else who's struggling. That's true. Mm-hmm. And 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 the and the Chinese have a big and vast growing middle class, actual middle class. They also have the underclass. Mm-hmm. What was the submerged tenth? I think is called in the book, um, mm-hmm. in in uh, the Jack London book. But uh, it's funny. There's this game I play called uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, and it's a game where you matched up with a hundred people, right, from wherever they want to be in the world. They can play, um, and in the North American servers. About 70% of the time, you're talking to somebody who who's Chinese and doesn't speak English. And that's on the North American servers, right? It's just so many kids now have computers in China. And mm-hmm. the Asian servers are full, so they're on the North American servers. Or they're just here, right? A, a lot of the ones who do speak English, like, they're here or in their Seattle. or right? So I get to talk to them. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it, it, it's just... The numbers are overwhelming because there's so many young people, and they all have computers. And when they're not studying, what are they doing? They're playing on their computers. And that is—it's just something people aren't seeing. It's not in the popular dialogue. It's not in the popular mind in the way that you know Japanese Japanese car manufacturing was in the mind in the 80s, right? Which was a obviously it was a thing, but they weren't seeing it. We are just on the cusp of of that realization, is my thinking. We, yeah, we're sort of off track, I guess. Yeah. Well, we're at the end of the podcast, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys again. Yeah. I'm gonna press stop on this. Yeah. Wow, a long one. Thanks. It was fun.